Hello, this is the EarthPod from Terry. Quite like the Energy and Resources Institute, which engages with multiple facets of sustainable development from science and technology to policy. This podcast too will steer conversations on issues related to climate change, energy transitions and environment-friendly growth. Scientists, researchers and experts from Terry will share their thoughts on technologies, interventions and policy direction they are working on to make the planet greener, cleaner and more sustainable. In this episode of the EarthPod, we discuss the upcoming COP27 at Sharm el-Sheikh and the desperate need for actionable takeaways to emerge from it. Much like 2021, this year too has been catastrophic in terms of climate change impacts across the world. The super warm summers in Asia, particularly India and Pakistan, and then the mammoth floods that brought one third of Pakistan underwater, extreme spells of heat in Europe and the United States, deadly storms and debilitating droughts in Africa. The impacts of climate change induced weather events have vexed every part of the planet this year. It is in this context that the 27th session of the Conference of Parties is being convened in Egypt in the second week of November. The 198 parties of the UNFCCC will gather in the African city of Sharm el-Sheikh for the fifth COP to be held in the continent. I'm P Anima from the communications team at Terry and we have Mr R R Rashmi distinguished fellow at Terry former special secretary in the Ministry of Environment Forest and Climate Change and India's former principal climate change negotiator under the UNFCCC for several years he will discuss what India and the global south and the world at large would want this session to deliver welcome to the earth pod mr rashmi thank you cop 27 is unfolding in a world that is vastly different from the one that hosted cop 26 happening as it is against the backdrop of the russia ukraine situation the energy security issues in europe and the climate change impacts that we are seeing across the world but at the same time climate action being stalled at least in some quarters how can cop 27 put climate action back on the saddle well uh, thank you for this question uh, The Ukraine-Russia war has certainly changed the scenario very substantially, but uh, to me it appears that it may not really affect the climate ambition uh, adversely. Certainly not in the long term. Uh, temporarily, it may upset the immediate uh, plans of action of some countries, uh, and I, I think that uh, would affect the developed countries more. but as far as the developing countries which are actually facing the heat and facing the adverse impacts of climate change their determination to adhere to the paris targets or paris ambition i don't think that will be uh, affected adversely at all uh, for a large number of developing countries uh, climate change is uh, not simply a question of you know emission reduction or carbon emission reduction but also a strategy of survival and adaptation and coping up with the adverse impacts so and on all in addition to being a, an issue of energy security so those questions are dominant questions which remain irrespective of the ukraine russia uh, crisis so it may change the terms on which 
you know the energy security issues will be handled but uh, in the long term and in the longer time frame i think the challenge will be met adequately by the uh, developing countries at least i am quite sanguine about that the developed countries are obviously uh, going to go through a different kind of crisis because uh, they had not faced this challenge earlier this kind of energy security issue they will now have to uh, similarly face this so i think it should uh, give them an opportunity to redouble their efforts to move towards a cleaner sources of energy and rely more on non fossil fuel uh, energy so to some extent i think the crisis may be a boon in disguise and it is 6 years since the paris agreement came into force and a year since that 1.5 degree celsius goal kind of barely is hanging on a thread in glasgow and it has been a year since that so looking at it how do you see the journey made by the world towards decarbonization at large and how can cop 27 take that conversation forward you know the story of decarbonization is certainly rather depressing uh, <clears throat> the kind of expectation that we have from uh, the developed world in terms of reduction of their carbon emissions and change in their energy systems that has not happened at the pace at which it was desired uh, only after so many years of uh, struggle uh, the us senate has finally had now agreed to an inflation reduction act where they have agreed to reduce their emissions by 40% by 2030 which is still uh, very very far from what they should have done you know for developed countries as a whole we are supposed to reach 1990 levels of their emission by 2000 and it's now 2022 yeah. on the other hand the global emissions are still rising and in the both in the developed and the developing world developing world has no excuse uh, i mean uh, one cannot put blame on them because they are a growing uh, segment of the world economy but the developed world has absolutely no excuse uh, why they still keep growing their emissions so this is certainly something which we need to be concerned about and although they have all declared net zero emission targets by 2050 but that is an aspirational target still far away in time so we need to see some concrete actions here and now so i hope the uh, the emphasis on coal phase down which was the hallmark of uh, glasgow pact i hope they live up to that um, promise and start showing some results now as you have rightly said the crisis has actually uh, undone the whole uh, right. uh, coal piece yeah uh, so hopefully they will now become uh, conscious of this reality that the they are the ones who have to uh, you know actually demonstrate and take lead in uh, reducing emissions phasing out coal from their energy system and show to the rest of the world that they can support the the other developing economies in making transition this cop is also being touted as a loss and damage cop and particularly what we are seeing especially in south asia what we saw in pakistan and the kind of devastation that has happened recently the that intrinsic link between finance and climate change has been asserted all the more so do you think india and the india could take a lead and maybe the south asian region could kind of push for the loss and damage cause further at cop 27 
Loss and damage is certainly going to dominate the discussions in uh, Shamul Sheikh. Uh, but you know, loss and damage is an issue which is slightly ticklish and uh, politically sensitive as well. Because <coughs> so far, uh, we have been discussing the issues of mitigation and adaptation. Now, loss and damage is a completely different uh, ball game. Uh, its character is very different. Here, one is trying to assess the losses because of the adverse impacts of climate change and trying to find ways and means of addressing them, either through uh, um, some kind of a financial measure or through some kind of an, um, a climate resilience measure. Uh, so there are different approaches to this. That is why it has not always been easy to get a political consensus on this issue and the approach to handle loss and damages within the UNFCCC. Even G20 and China, of which India is a member, yeah. has uh, practically remained divided on this. There are a large number of countries which have different sets of problems as far as loss and damage is concerned. You know, India and China and Brazil and South Africa, they would be looking at this an, in a particular manner. Uh, but small island uh, developing countries would look at it in a different manner. Oil producing states, which are also part of G20, they would look at it in a different manner. So the question is in Shamul Sheikh, what kind of a common uh, ideology we can formulate or framework we can evolve mm. uh, for loss and damage to be addressed. There are developed countries, as you know, mm. who are clearly against any compensation facility. They don't want this to be termed as a, um, a payment liability, uh, payment of liability. So uh, at the best, uh, what can be hoped for is that we should have an internationally cooperative framework mm. in which we agree to create a financing window for meeting the loss and damages to a certain extent. Now, how exactly uh, that financing window will be utilized or facility will be uh, utilized is, of course, a matter of negotiation or a future evolution. But certainly, a time has come uh, when this facility needs to be multilaterally uh, established and recognized as such as a genuine and legitimate need of the developing world. And now it is also evident that even the developed world needs to you know, have climate resilient infrastructure in place because they are also suffering similar damages. So this is a common need. And ultimately, uh, the loss and damage can be minimized only if you have resilient infrastructure. So I think that the loss and damage issue is ultimately going to be linked with the issue of financing a climate resilient infrastructure, which is more or less a part of the financing adaptation needs of most of the developing countries. Mr. Rashmeet also brings in what has been a contentious issue since Copenhagen, climate finance between the developed and the developing countries. And it is also tagged with this continuous failure to kind of uh, cater to the USD $100 million annually. And you know, considering that so many COPs have passed discussing the issue of climate finance, what would you consider to be one positive takeaway from you know, on the aspect of climate finance at COP27? Or is it kind of uh, time to kind of give up hope of any of that $100 billion coming through? You know, at Shamul Sheikh, I don't think we'll have a final decision yeah. on this issue. There is a two years work program which has been launched. So hopefully it will be closed sometime in Dubai. Uh, but certainly one uh, 
possibility is that at least there should be a recognition right. of the need to scale up the uh, long-term finance. In fact, on this issue itself, there has been a great degree of resistance mm -hmm. and um, difference of opinion. So, if we are able to generate consensus on the need to scale up the uh, level of uh, uh, financing mobilization, that itself I think will be a great achievement. For example, 100 billion dollars was a figure which was agreed much before the Paris Agreement was signed. It was uh, the G uh, Green Climate Fund was established sometime in uh, in Durban, mm -hmm. uh, formalized in Durban actually, although it was conceived in Copenhagen. Yes. But <coughs> that a long time has passed and they have admitted that they have not been able to mobilize even 100 billion dollars. Right. Today, based on the NDCs, there is a needs assessment report published by the UNFCCC itself, which says that the total cumulative financing requirements of developing world is anything in the range of 5.8 to 5.9 trillion dollars right. till 2030. And our own Prime Minister has said uh, 1 trillion at least a year. So obviously there is a range uh, and we should be able able to agree on this enhanced scale of requirement uh, whether the number is 1 trillion or 5 trillion or somewhere in between and how that uh, finance should be raised are matters of detail but they will be discussed later but immediately I think the Shamul Sheikh uh, the one of the important takeaways could be if we can agree on the enhanced scale of the resources. That brings us to the global goal of adaptation established at COP26. Again, like how do you see that going forward, the adaptation finance part of it at uh, COP27? The global goal on adaptation has been, you know, agreed after a long time, uh, just like um, a global goal on mitigation. Right. Uh, but it is not entirely about financing. Mm. I mean, uh, in my view, adaptation can be uh, about many things. And certainly, financing is a very major component there. So, Sharmal Sheikh will naturally need to focus on adaptation financing. Right. There was a decision in Glasgow that adaptation finance will be doubled. So, if they can agree, uh, again, um, agree in uh, Sharmal Sheikh that they will achieve uh, a double uh, uh, scale uh, of the adaptation finance will be doubled and it will be a certain level, a certain number can be put to that uh, ambition and it will be achieved by such and such date, that itself will be a great achievement. But in addition to the financing, uh, the adaptation needs, I think ad global goal on adaptation should also discuss the approaches. What kind of approaches need to be followed, country-driven approaches, locally-led approaches, and uh, what are the components of this adaptation um, framework. For example, early warning signals. Right. All the developing countries need to uh, establish early warning signals. They need to have um, community-led um, investment um, adaptation plans. The sub-national uh, entities need to be strengthened with resources. So, what kind of investment framework do we visualize for them? So, all this could be part of global goal on adaptation and if they can um, prepare a targeted uh, time um, plan of action uh, for achieving these uh, goals. I think that uh, would make it more, much more comprehensive. There is also a general skepticism about how effective a COP this is going to be. Uh, and COPs, I think, among the general public also, there is a kind of belief that it's more talk rather than action. So, you know, looking at COP27, 
how positive are you about some actionable takeaways emerging from it? It's a difficult question. It depends on the issues actually which are at the forefront. Um, I don't doubt the ability of the Egyptian um, uh, leadership to come up with certain specific and uh, tangible outcomes. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Shamal Sheikh, uh, the work programs mostly are of continuing nature. Right. Uh, the, <clears throat> the, whether it is long-term finance or whether it is uh, global uh, goal, goal on adaptation, they will continue to be discussed, but uh, final decisions will be reached later. Uh, but still, uh, <clears throat> it is important that uh, uh, Egypt being in the lead and Egypt being a part of Africa, uh, for the African constituency, I'm sure the presidency will try to focus on the issues of adaptation finance uh, and then some kind of a tangible outcome on that. And I think there will be some degree of sympathy for this, um, also because of the loss and damage issue, which is uh, playing in the background, uh, which is affecting all the countries across the globe. Uh, so I do see that adaptation and loss and damage will receive a greater priority and Egyptian uh, the leadership will try to get some tangible outcome on this. Right. As a long-time climate negotiator, sir, like you have been taking part in COPs, I think since 2008, what are those early, some of the early negotiations now you have seen over a period of time at a stage of being implemented on the ground? No, lots of things have actually happened on the ground since um, I have started participating in this. Uh, initially, you know, you know, the uh, the world was divided into Annex One and Annex Two when we started this process uh, with Bali Action Plan. Right. Uh, but the there has been a sea of change. Now all countries are universally committed to mm. taking actions. Mm. India also has its own uh, commitment. So this is a very fundamental uh, transformation which has happened that. There is a universal agreement on taking binding commitment to implement certain actions. Uh, I must tell you that when I joined uh, this entire process, uh, we were uh, vehemently opposed to this idea of uh, the responsibility being transferred to the developing countries in terms of binding commitments. But uh, uh, the international dynamics uh, being what it is, uh, finally, you know, uh, major countries had to agree to become a part of this binding commitment. Of course, based on the principles of CBDR and differentiated responsibilities and national circumstances. So that continues to, uh, to, to, to um, be the main uh, foundation on which the actions are built. Mm. And uh, <coughs> a, very, a large number of positive actions have uh, started appearing. This entire energy transition in India, for example, would not have happened. Mm if there was no political commitment to uh, this um, uh, goal. Mm. You know, uh, ever since the Honorable Prime Minister took over, he has given it a further fillip. Right. Uh, uh, in 2012 or 13, the total uh, gigawatt capacity of renewable energy power in our country was not more than five or six gigawatts. Today it is 105 gigawatts. This quantum jump has taken place only because of the political movement. Right. So I would say that uh, the and the climate negotiations have certainly added a push uh, to the energy transition uh, efforts in 
many of the developing countries. It has also changed the character of the negotiations in a manner that uh, the transparency of actions at the global level, which was not foreseen in the uh, UNFCCC mother convention, mm. now it's a part of the uh, agreed documents mm. and countries uh, they are bound to now demonstrate that they are actually adhering to their commitments and they have to prove that they have actually implemented and there is a, a process of transparency at the global level. So all these are very important significant changes which address the issue of competition, comparability of actions to a certain extent amongst the major economies which was the you know initial reason why uh, countries like US and Europeans were uh, adamant that major economies like China and India and Brazil should also take uh, major commitments. Yeah. So, so there has been a great deal of change. Okay. Uh, in Glasgow, like finally it came down to the facing down and the facing out dichotomy. But uh, in your years as a climate negotiator, do you remember a time when you felt, okay, we were at the verge of something big? but then it fizzled out or maybe there was no political will to kind of take it forward. Do you recall any of those instances or if so, like, you know, can you share anything that you remember from those negotiation years? Oh, yes. Um, <clears throat> I can cite uh, two examples. Uh, one was on the issue of forestry, you know, uh, something called um, uh, reducing uh, deforestation and um, in developing countries. It's called red. Yes. And on the other hand, the developing countries like India were pleading for sustainable forestry management. Mm. So these are two different concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, uh, some countries where forests are actually uh, getting depleted, yes. they were asking for compensation uh, for the loss of their forests. India was saying that we are not losing our forests, we are maintaining our forests. So we should be rewarded for this. And this uh, 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 divergence in the approach, uh, one um, uh, in Bali, one semicolon, the way the text was structured, one semicolon <laughs> decided that it was not in favor of India. Right. Uh, so uh, it is very important how the texts are developed and um, uh, finally agreed. So one has to be very extremely cautious and extremely uh, up on uh, yeah. uh, its legs. So that was one instance and the second was equity, the issue of equity. You know equity was a very fundamental premise of our negotiations even it continues to be so but um, now equity is a part of the committed process. Yes. We have taken commitments but the commitments are based on equity and CVDR. Uh, and we had moved a proposal uh, in uh, Durban to uh, ensure that equity, there is a framework for defining equity. Mm. Now, till today, that framework has not been defined. Because nobody is clear about how equity is to be defined, whether it should be in per capita terms or whether it should be in uh, per capita income terms or HDI terms. And uh, it will remain a very, very important issue. Although we all know what equity would mean in um, actual purpose, uh, but operational sen sense it has never been defined. So there has been uh, there have been many moments when it has been touch and go. Mm -hmm. you know, we uh, want uh, to somehow formalize it, concretize it, but yeah. we are not able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so that is a perennial problem. Yes. So the touch and goes outweigh 
the real outcomes most of the time. It always happens like that. <laughs> so this is a part of negotiations and uh, negotiators know how to live with that. Yes. Dairy has also been a part of COP for many years and this year too the organization is uh, the de delegates are taking part in multiple discussions on climate action and adaptation. From an institutional perspective, what are you looking to kind of gain from COP27? Every COP is a learning process. We uh, meet a large number of stakeholders in the COP. That is the advantage of a conference like this, uh, that people from different walks of life, different the science, academia, the practitioners, the policy makers, the governments, the non-governmental agencies, they all get together and researchers, um, philanthropists. So we, one tends to, gets to meet them in a, and then they are all focused on one single issue. Of course they will have different agendas, different uh, areas of action and uh, expertise. Uh, so it's always advantageous for an institution like Terry which is working in different fields. Uh, to touch base with those people, the researchers, the academia. So our main objective is to essentially uh, strike uh, rapport uh, and then uh, meet uh, our future collaborators in terms of research and uh, those who can support our own research here or we can uh, carry out joint research in areas where we lack expertise but with the help of others we can give them a window to Indian uh, situation uh, and there are many more who are looking at India with great degree of interest. India is a rising country, leading country and certainly anything which happens in India uh, evokes a lot of uh, global interest. So Terry is uh, very well positioned to that. It's one of the, the leading, perhaps the largest environmental organization in the country. So it gives it an opportunity to present its views and also strike uh, and identify new areas of collaboration with its partners. So let's hope that COP27 has enough takeaways for all stakeholders from the institutional, from the country, the regional level and the world at large. Thank you, Mr. Rashmi. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Earth Pod. You can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcast and YouTube. To know more about our work on sustainable development and climate change, you can visit our website www.terryin.org.